2: it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and setting political resolutions for the new year. On today's show, Canada's foreign interference problem, the controversial carbon tax, the housing crisis, and the tenuous NDP Liberal Confidence Agreement. It's time to reflect and look back on a year of serious and sometimes ridiculous political turbulence. Joining me this week, we have missed her on the show as much as you probably have. She's a scholar, writer, and host of Red Surgeons. It's Riley Yesno. Hey, friend. Hi. In case you were worried we weren't going to have news from inside the Ottawa bubble, we have our seasoned Ottawa expert here, Politico's Nick Taylor-Vassi. Happy to have you back on the show.
3: Thanks for having me. The bubble is, uh, it's burst already for the for the year, so we're in a good spot right now.
2: And last but not least, according to his Twitter profile, he turns coffee into words. Me too, I hope, today. He's also a reporter from Politico. It's Kyle Duggan. Welcome to the Backbench.
4: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
2: Let's get into it. So it has been a very eventful year in Canadian politics. I know often as journalists or people who observe the news, we like to complain about politicians' behavior, especially when it comes to parliamentary conduct that we think is foolish. But it sure can be funny to listen to you and look back on.
1: When I'm prime minister, I will keep my promises. Now, another promise, let me try again start spreading the news. He's leaving today. <laughs> he wants to be a part of it. New York, New, New York. York. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, and the honorable members, his singing is not allowed. Whether it's good or bad, it's not allowed. Mr. Speaker, we're focused on the prime minister's vacation, and I know that there's a lot of Canadians who believe that he should take a permanent vacation. Mr. Speaker, the Leader of the Opposition struggles with the concept of friendship, Mr. Speaker. My father was godfather uh, to one of their... The only thing Canadian about the Prime Minister's vacation is the tax dollars forced to pay for it, Mr. When will this partisan hack finance minister finally understand that carbon tax causes inflation? Mr. Trudeau, uh, Mr. Speaker... One thing that the Prime Minister wants to know about is himself. That's why he can't help but using his own name right here on the floor of the House of Commons. He is in love with the sound of his own voice and his own attacks, but he doesn't actually check the facts. So the high school drama teacher over here accuses others of liking the sounds of their own voices. This from a guy who, if he were made of chocolate, he would eat himself.
4: I wish to apologize to the House, and I'm deeply sorry that I have offended many uh, in my, with my gesture and remarks.
3: Colleagues, before we begin, it's my first question period. Please treat
1: me like that new car and don't give it a dent on the first day. <laughs> well, I can tell you, Conservatives will al- always loudly and proudly wish everyone a Merry Christmas, even though... For many people, this Christmas will not be very merry at all.
2: Deeply troubling stuff. This clownery is what is really happening in the House of Commons, and hopefully in theory amidst all of that, there was also some serious discussion. Here on the backbench, we spent this year covering a lot of what has unfolded, and I found myself looking back forgetting just how much stuff actually happened. We saw bail reform, there was that spy balloon back in February, there was the Roxham Road border crossing attempting to be closed, we saw banks collapsing, the Silicon Valley Bank, discussion about public safety, wildfires, AI, queer and trans rights, the carbon tax, Haiti, China, India, Israel, Palestine, and so much more. For this episode of The Backbench, we wanted to take a look back at some of those key moments and make some predictions as to what will unfold in the new year. So to start things off, I want to chat about foreign interference, because we saw several foreign interference stories make major headlines this year. So the first one of these was the supposed spy balloon story. So back in February, a supposed spy balloon flew over the United States and into Canada. And then following that, a political firestorm erupted in May when the Globe and Mail reported on CSIS intelligence, which suggested Chinese meddling in a number of Canadian elections. And then to top that all off, there were allegations of a potential link between Indian government agents and the assassination of a Canadian citizen, which unfolded in September. So it has been one hell of a year on this file. To go more deeply into the Chinese election interference, there's actually an inquiry that has now entered its preliminary phase after the appointment of Justice Marie-José Hogue, And the inquiry is an effort to make sense of what unfolded during the 2021 and 2019 election campaigns— And it'll actually kick off in early 2024. Last Monday, Justice Hoag appointed the Conservatives the intervener status during the inquiry, which only allows them to be present at public hearings, make legal submissions, and see evidence presented in public. And it also means that members of the Conservative Party will not be able to cross-examine witnesses and see all the evidence. So this status, the Conservatives are claiming, undermines the credibility of the entire process. The NDP was also given this intervener status. So, Dick, as somebody who's really tapped into what's happening in Ottawa, I want to know what your reaction was to these announcements surrounding this upcoming inquiry and the status appointment for the Conservatives and the NDP.
3: Well, I think the first thing we have to do is just pause for a minute to reflect on the poor life of Michael Tanzi, who is the communications guy on the public inquiry into foreign interference. He was also the guy who did this thankless, thankless job during the Convoy Commission. And He stands between journalists and information. (laughs) So I think he's going to have a rough several months ahead once the public inquiry starts sitting and starts uh, doing its work. So that, I feel, is the most important thing we have to, as journalists, recognize before this starts. When it comes to the specifics of of who's allowed to see what and talk to whom and question whom, I, I, I think it is important to note that Michael Chong, a Conservative member of Parliament, was given a higher bar. He will have presumably a lawyer on his behalf asking questions of everybody he'd like to who does take the stand. And that was a a recognition by the commissioner of his particular role and place in this kind of burbling drama, which is quite central, given that he has been targeted by foreign interference. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't really know how to argue for or against what the Conservatives or New Democrats are going to be able to, to do here. But they were. I think it's important to note that they were given kind of equal standing, those two parties, and that they will have no problem making hay of whatever they like to during this, however long it takes inquiry, because they also still have what they always have which is a bit of a pulpit in the House of Commons to make whatever views they want known about what they're witnessing. You know, getting their views out there will not be an issue.
2: So Kyle, I guess I want to turn to you for some of your thoughts. What do you think this all sort of tells us about the government's ability to collaborate perhaps with the opposition to deal with these real allegations of foreign interference? Because what I've sort of seen over the past year is there's this sort of like weaponization by opposition parties of these foreign interference allegations that are coming out saying that this is clearly not a government that can be trusted to deal with it seriously. But then there's also questions of whether, say, if the Conservatives were in government, whether they would be willing or able to really do anything differently.
4: Yeah. So I think that this story is so interesting, going from the allegations of of what China's been doing to the allegations of what, what India's been doing. It is kind of the story of the year. I, I don't know that it's going to be a ballot box question in the end. But to your point, it really put the liberal government in a corner. They were on their heels for a very long time, pushed by the conservatives and the NDP into calling a public inquiry, which they didn't want to do. They had appointed their own special rapporteur or Independent investigator that eventually had had to step down. David Johnston, the former Governor General, who I think up until that point everybody thought was quite independent, and the opposition had managed to draw enough conflict of interest concerns to to push him out. And so that's kind of, it, was, it. Kind of marks like the the start of where things where things started to go sideways for the Liberals, not necessarily in the polling. But just in terms of kind of losing control of things, like they had to respond by calling a public inquiry. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this how this plays out into the new year. We'll have uh, an interim report in February.
2: Yeah. So one thing that's been sort of interesting, I guess, is it seems like foreign interference, the the method of dealing with it has just been like we're going to do an inquiry after the fact. And then there's been some sort of discussion that's come out about whether the government is able to really, like, again, willing or able to really do anything to stop foreign interference before it happens. So the Toronto Star obtained documents from CSIS, the National Spy Agency, earlier this year under an access to information process, uh, which indicated that CSIS was concerned about a lack of consequences for foreign state interference, And a briefing that was prepared for Justin Trudeau's National Security and Intelligence Advisor, which was dated September 9th, 2022, so sort of before all of these breaking stories uh, from this year about foreign interference, said that state actors are able to conduct foreign interference successfully in Canada because there are no consequences, either legal or political, which is like a pretty damning thing to just be stated in a report. So I guess, Riley, I know what I think this indicates about the government's ability or willingness to deal with foreign interference. Now that this has sort of come out and there's been all of these stories, I'm inclined to agree with Kyle that this is unlikely to be like a ballot box question for voters just because it's something that's quite abstract and like divorced from the concerns that most people are probably going to be thinking about when they go to the ballot box, those sort of like economic, like wallet householdy type issues. But I do feel like this is becoming somewhat impossible to ignore, even for voters who maybe aren't going to like vote based on what the government says they're going to do, but for an interference.
0: Historically,
2: I think that
0: the average Canadian voter does not go to the ballot box with any sort of international politics, foreign affairs issues in mind. And so, yeah, there's that. But I also agree, I think, especially with Kyle's analysis, which is to say that like where this is the most problematic if I was the liberals is in the way that it does not bode well for them in comparison to the opposition to the conservatives that having first gotten David Johnson outed they didn't want an inquiry very loudly didn't want an inquiry then they got the inquiry um, now they're saying the inquiry doesn't work I don't even know like enough about <laughs> the how the public inquiries go at that level and also like what sort of consequences could or should be in place it's not my expertise but I do know enough to say that like I think at this point, even if it was working well, it's in the conservatives' best interest to keep saying that it's not because they've really done well to set this like sort of foundation of painting Justin Trudeau and the liberal government as incompetent, toothless. And especially, I think this is like inherently tied to context in the US where foreign affairs is like a much more prominent issue and people do pay more attention to it. And so I think that the conservatives have kind of tapped into that sector of folks. And so, yeah, good on them. Sorry for Justin Trudeau, I guess.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, if I was like a campaign strategist with the conservatives right now, I'd be like so pleased with myself because it just feels like on every issue they are raking the government over the coals and they're kind of crushing it for, you know, what crushing it means to them. I think the comparison with the US is interesting, just in the sense of shortly after this news broke essentially that the assassination of a Canadian citizen in Canada, allegedly by agents of the Indian government, there was also news coming out of the US that there had been thwarted similar attempts in the US. So it just seems like there's a a much greater willingness on the part of the American government to actually like take this seriously as a threat, and it really does make Canada look somewhat toothless by comparison. In terms of other areas where the Conservatives have been sort of crushing it. The carbon tax has really reemerged as something that's at the forefront of political debate this year. Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev has hosted Axe the Tax rallies across the country, and we always know that a slogan that rhymes is going to do well. Here's a clip from one of those rallies.
1: And here's the plan. Folks, here's the plan. We're going to bring home lower prices by axing the carbon tax and the inflationary deficits. Yes. Axe the tax! 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 tax.
2: So on October 26th, Prime Minister Trudeau announced a three-year carbon tax exemption on home heating oil and higher carbon tax rebates for folks living in rural areas, which is a decision that has kind of propelled the carbon tax back into controversy. We've seen, you know, some of these policies have been somewhat targeted at specific provinces where more people use home heating oil. That's led premiers of other provinces to say, like, what about us? We also should get some sort of rebate, scaling back of the tax. Conservatives are now calling to have the entire tax scrapped, which is no surprise. They've never particularly liked it. So I guess, Riley, I'll turn to you first. Why would this decision be made uh, in terms of the Liberals scaling back what has been one of their marquee policies that they've really hung their hat on for the entire eight years that they've been in government? And what are the future implications of this decision looking down the line? If I had to make my best guess, I would say that
0: it was like both this mix of feeling the pressure uh, from Canadians who are listening to the Conservatives basically decimate the Liberals at every front, saying that they don't take the average person um, seriously. Pierre Polyev has this very populist, you know, rhetoric that he's been really leaning on this. I would assume that's taken purchase specifically in some rural conservative sort of areas. The other part of this, though, is that generally affordability is like one of the other huge talking points right now in Canada. We all know it's getting it is just completely unaffordable to live. And that is especially so in places like rural isolated communities. And so this would be I think the government could see as one easy way to to maybe show that they're taking affordability concerns seriously and that this is the unintended sort Sort of blowback about it. But the thing about the carbon tax that makes me, I think, so sad most overall is that I'm just like, when we get so stuck in Canada on the carbon tax, not that I think it is, you know, the solution to our climate change problems, but I think it is prohibitive of us being able to do other sort of more ambitious climate initiatives. And climate change for me, and I think for a lot of especially young people, is like a top, top concern. And so it just makes me very depressed every time I see the carbon tax in the news, because I know if we can't talk about this properly, we're definitely not talking about actual clean energy. We're not talking about transforming the way we live with each other in the land and in cities and stuff so yeah
3: the moment it became clear that the liberals i think lost some version of the carbon tax debate obviously the carbon tax is still in effect and it it still applies to most people but it was october 26th it was the day that they carved out the home heating oil for largely proportionally disproportionately that is atlantic canadians and hundreds of thousands of others but they were unable to explain it. And I don't even know that this is the communications issue that we, we, you know, we always, as journalists, talk about how bad the liberals are communicating. I don't even think this is an example of them being bad at something because they're bad at things. It's just a really complex thing to explain. And Stephen Guibault, the environment minister, explained this to our political colleague, Xian. He acknowledged, basically, the carbon taxes or the carbon prices, of course, he calls it, is really like it takes time to talk people through it where acts the tax takes less than a second to say and that's the disadvantage that's like the structural disadvantage and then the other thing i think that the liberals i don't know if they have acknowledged it or not but i think it is the reality they always say more households than than not end up better off because the rebates are you know they, they're more l- lucrative than whatever households pay in carbon taxes but the thing is, rebates, even though they're not annual anymore, they're quarterly, that's still quarterly. You still have to wait for the rebate. It still takes way too long for most people to benefit from the check that comes in the mail or, or is direct deposited. So, you know, they're facing crazy energy bills and the government is, they could quadruple the rebate, but that if the check only comes in two months, what are you going to do in the time in between? What are you going to do on the first of the month when you have to pay rent every week when you go buy groceries? Like it's, it, the, the world moves too quickly for that rebate, I think, to hit. People at the right time for it to be politically effective and also just like practically effective because practically people need money now and tomorrow and the next day. And even as inflation news gets better as the months and quarters pass, prices aren't going down. They're just not going up as quickly.
4: By backsliding on on the home heating oil, they've they've made kind of a tacit admission that it is an affordability issue and that actually plays to Polyev. I don't know if the liberals, how much they had thought of that, but it, it actually goes to make his argument for him. And it raises questions about how committed the liberals are to the carbon tax policy in general. And also as kind of an interesting Side story of the whole thing, this is a bunch of backbench MPs who had flexed their muscles and won. They won a fight against PMO. So I think that that's kind of reinvigorated or made some MPs realize how much power they actually have within the governing caucus.
2: I think there's like a cynical and a non-cynical way that you can look at it. The cynical way would be they're looking at sort of what polling numbers are saying They're seeing that they are extremely likely to lose their seats if things kind of continue the way that they're going. And they have constituents who are very loudly concerned about the cost of home heating oil and just generally cost of like gas at the pump, like particularly people that are living in the more rural ridings in Atlantic Canada. And so they're seeing that and they're like, well, I I need to save my ass and save my job. The non-cynical ways, of course, like these are real concerns that people have and they are representing those constituent interests. Like whichever way you look at it, there's like, I think it's, it's quite savvy on their part to recognize that that's something that they need to advocate for. Very unfortunate if you're like a Liberal cabinet minister, Stephen Guilbeault, who's like really hung your hat on this. And now it's sort of unclear what the Liberal government's uh, climate achievements really are. So, yeah, I totally agree. This is like a big score for the Conservatives in terms of getting this as a concession. Speaking of other big scores, it truly has been a marquee year for Pierre Poiliev. Again, it pains me to say it, but they're 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 crushing it. They're doing such a good job. They're way ahead in the polls. Pierre Poiliev has capitalized his influence on social media, has like really monopolized political discourse in the country this year. So on December 2nd, Pierre Poiliev published a 15 minute long documentary, although calling it a documentary feels a bit generous, (laughs) titled Housing Hell, How We Got Here and How We Get Out. And here's a little bit of what that documentary had to say.
1: Something new and strange has happened in Canada. Canada is sitting on probably one of the largest housing bubbles of all times something we haven't seen before. An entire generation of youth now say they will never be able to afford a home. This is not normal for Canada.
2: Personally, my favorite part of Housing Hell is when the narration says quantitative easing in a tone that makes it sound as though like a horror movie monster is being introduced, like the way that you might say, like, and Godzilla returns.
1: They use a complicated set of transactions that they call quantitative easing
2: and just does not really explain in any sort of way what quantitative easing is. If you want to convince someone that there's like a real problem with housing in this country, like this 15 minute thing will absolutely do it. What is less clear to me at least is what the conservative sort of alternative is in terms of solving the housing crisis. So what is Polyev and the conservatives actual plan when it comes to tackling housing affordability in this country?
3: I think, um, summed up in a few words it is to cities you don't get money unless you build things or make sure that people in your cities build things and so where the liberals are doing this kind of proactive if you promise to densify your your cities and make sure that you build more quickly here's money to help you do that uh, pure Poly is saying it's not on us to incentivize you with money it's on you to to build things, and then you get rewarded for building things. I think well, there's a line in that video that says, if you fund promises, you get more promises. If you fund results, you get more results, which is a pretty compelling thing to say. And you can sort of, you can definitely see the logic in it. And so he's got a few specific kind of sub policies. Like he wants to reward cities that build near transit because he's arguing in favor of public transit, which I think a lot of people would not have perhaps expected that from Pierre Poly. But what it really boils down to is No more will the money from Ottawa come, and then there will be some expectation of, in uh, some sort of framework time period, some measure of results, maybe it'll be build it, and then the checks
1: will flow.
2: Yeah, and I think we've seen in recent weeks the liberals have really ramped up their messaging around we are going to require cities to like demonstrate some sort of plans in order to access funding. But I think the the line in terms of like a good comms line from the conservatives of we want to see results and then you get money. Certainly I think for people that are concerned about just like rampant government spending, which is another big thing that they've been hitting, sounds pretty compelling. Another question, because a big thing in housing hell is sort of like talking about just how bad the housing situation has gotten in the past eight years of liberal government. Why do you think the liberals and, you know, the NDP, now that they're sort of involved in the confidence and supply agreement with the liberals and sort of participating in governing, why have they struggled when it comes to tackling the housing crisis?
4: One of the reasons is that a lot of the the factors are kind of beyond their control, right? So, for example, a major influence in, in this is interest rates. That's monetary policy. The government can't control interest rates. So, you know, they're on track to maybe go down starting early next year. So that that would be kind of a major advance. But in terms of like when you talk about housing, there's so many different different aspects of it. there's affordability, there's availability, there's, you know, rental housing and, and mortgages and so on. We we need something like six million homes in the next 10 years. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the government's going to do. They, they can't produce that many <laughs> <laughs> yeah, homes, like, like at the snap of their finger, so they're going to struggle no matter what. Like this is not a short-term fix issue. One more point: this is uh, an issue that's going to go not just into the next election, but into the next election after that. The spin on it now is is one thing, but then whoever wins the next election is is going to have to continue spinning that they're that they're throwing the kitchen sink at this problem and is still going to be hard.
0: The things that I have noticed that no party is really wanting to do is go after the less last- Politically popular bad guys in the housing uh, crisis. And so people who are doing short term rentals, Airbnbs, who landlords who have like, you know, dozens and dozens of properties. And they also don't want to pressure the provinces to stop rental increases and put caps on rental increases because that would be messy. (laughs) It would not be advantageous to them to go after landlords, to go after the provinces. But I do think that those are things that would make substantial differences, at least in, you know, the Affordability in the meantime while they try and build the supply for those, all those new houses that they promise. And so until then, we're getting things that are like these little band aid solutions, like, you know, first time home buyer subsidies and all of those things that might be, you know, fine ostensibly, but they don't actually get at a problem at the root and just try and get a handful of people into a market that is just unaffordable point blank so a little bit more ambition would be nice from any party really
2: yeah i think there's this issue where the federal government has it's very like i think the most emblematic thing that the liberals have ever said about their attitude towards like class mobility and housing is their phrasing of like all of their policies are directed at the middle class or those hoping to join it which I think is such hilarious phrasing. I'm like, what do you mean hoping to join the middle class? Like, there's always going to be a group of people that are renters, that are relatively lower class compared to other people. There's always going to be people that are perpetually hoping to join it, right? And so I think a lot of the housing policy has really been focused on people who are, like, aspiring home buyers, first-time homebuyers, you know, they're letting you borrow against your RRSP to put money into a, like a home savings account. Well, that only works if you're the sort of person who like has money to put in an RRSP to begin with, right? So anything that is sort of targeted at somebody who is probably always going to be a renter is just not being done. And like at best, you maybe get these solutions that are targeted at increasing housing supply. But the thing is, is like there are places in Canada where there's no supply crisis and rents are still sky high. Right. So I think some of the stuff that you're talking about really tackling the financialization of housing and shelter, no one wants to do it, but it's like really going to be necessary at some point, I think. We've spent a lot of time talking about the wild successes and soaring heights of Pierre Polyev's political career this year. So let's direct some attention towards the political parties that have not been having as hot of a time, that being the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, So the confidence and supply agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, which was signed in March of 2022, is now almost two years old. And despite repeated threats from the NDP to break the agreement, so far it has held up. Uh, But on November 28th, the Liberal government broke a key promise that they had made to the NDP, which was to pass Pharmacare legislation by the end of 2023. So first things first, just like an assessment of the effectiveness of the agreement overall, I guess, Kyle, how effective has this agreement been for the Liberals? How effective has it been for the NDP? Is there an asymmetry in who's sort of gaining from this agreement or are both parties kind of coming out okay?
4: the Liberals love this agreement, right? It does benefit both parties, but it tends to skew towards favoring the Liberals. It's just they're in government, right? This isn't a coalition government. This is a tacit agreement to keep the government running with with some NDP policies. So, you know, the Pharmacare blown deadline is interesting. It's like uh, very high stakes. You know, the, the party is pushing for universal Pharmacare. It's maybe a good sign for the agreement that they've decided to pass on the deadline. And that's going to be the challenge when they when they go into uh, the next election, is, is being able to say that these are things that they've done when, you know, it, 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 there are liberal government measures.
2: And I would say, like, the liberals' communications have in general not been very good, but they have been quite successful, I would say, in sort of taking ownership of a lot of the I guess what the NDP would want to characterize is their wins coming out of the confidence and supply agreement. And it's been very funny, like, so the dental care, like the new dental care plan is being expanded slowly. We saw at first uh, coverage for, I think it was kids under 12. And now the coverage is slowly being expanded uh, to seniors, starting with seniors over the age of 87. And it's been very funny to see the NDP really like hanging, wanting to take credit for it so much when it's this plan that's being sort of introduced in increments obviously better for them than no plan at all. It is a real win but it seems like they're having a lot of difficulty actually getting people to see their role in all of this. I don't know Nick, what are your thoughts on on this?
3: yeah I mean I think the the NDP's ability to take credit or or vic- claim victory on any of these measures it all comes down to who you're talking to in the NDP it's the the classic like 60 year old or more going back to the the CCF days, pragmatism versus principle axis in that party. And the pragmatists who largely concentrate in Ottawa love this because they do get to roll out these concurrent announcements every few months, like clockwork, when there's a new piece of that uh, supply and confidence agreement that's put in legislation. The anti-scab bill is another example of that, where those pragmatists say, if we had not signed this deal in March of, of 2022 where there'd be no dental care. I mean, and we know that's true because the liberals didn't campaign on that. And Christopher Freeland's budget, which was tabled like four, what, four or five weeks or something after that, or even less maybe after that deal was was struck, included dental care money that that totally underestimated the cost of it. And so the, the speed with which the Department of Finance bureaucrats had to react to this deal, I think was a testament to the NDP's ability to actually impact government. And so they're looking at the rollout of this program, which was always the plan, right, the, the plan was always to phase in by the election year, which liberals and new Democrats both would have thought could play to their advantage to be able to campaign on a, a fully rolled out program is a sign that they yeah, they're they're here to play. But of course, then the principled NDPers across Canada say, what the hell are we doing? We're moving our red lines. Now, PharmaCare is next. PharmaCare, of course, should take A good amount of time to whip into shape because it is so complex. It will take so many conversations with provinces and it will be so expensive at a time when the government keeps talking about cutting, 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 not spending, spending, spending. They're afraid to cut, but they they keep talking about at least slowing spending. So it's I I think on balance, more people are happy with the agreement than not. Because it still gives them a reason to be relevant at this point in, in a minority government. But I think a lot of them are, are being realistic and saying, okay, but when we go and campaign on any of these things, we know that they are, as we've talked about already on this podcast, government announcements. The junior partner in, a, in, a, in an arrangement like this almost never comes out on top.
2: One conversation that I had with a lot of people over the course of the year was because the government is being propped up essentially through this confidence and supply agreement um, and are in a minority government situation, there's always chatter of like, could there be an election on the horizon? And, The latest we could see an election would be in the fall of 2025, but I have heard people speculate, you know, as to whether the NDP would ever consider breaking the Confidence and Supply Agreement. Seems like if they are getting some of these wins and the pragmatists, as you say, Nick, are sort of the majority in the party, or at least certainly the decision makers that are based in Ottawa um, leadership, it seems like, you know, there's no real reason for them to cut out now. Do either of you have any predictions for the future of this relationship, considering that, like, in theory, an election could be around the corner?
3: I think that the shifted deadline on Pharmacare is a a vote in favor of an election being further away than closer.
2: Just because like you think the NDP is not going to they're not going to want to sacrifice possibly achieving Pharmacare. Like, is that sort of the rationale there?
3: I mean, if they're they're willing to bend and not break, then it, it, it sort of takes all of the all the leverage out of the conversation between the two parties. They keep talking about these Pharmacare negotiations as being incredibly positive and collaborative and they're. Nobody's talking about anybody walking away from the table. It really seems like the NDP is still willing to talk. And they didn't really threaten much in the last few weeks when it came to supporting liberal efforts to fast-track legislation. They always found a way to be a part of those discussions and try to get something out of them. They seem to be having a pretty good time at
4: that negotiating table. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty collaborative relationship between the two of them. I don't see a reason for the NDP to trigger an election early at this point. Their war chest is pretty thin. And, you know, I don't see the party kind of like the the partisans kind of gearing up for battle at the moment. (laughs) Um, But I mean, the red line in the sand could be universal pharmacare. But I mean, if conversations are still going on, then that's probably a a pretty positive sign for the the state of the relationship there. So I think if anyone's going to pull an early election, it would probably be the liberals.
2: Well, I truly don't know why they would, because it just just seems like they're headed for disaster at this point. We've been asking you a little bit to look into your crystal ball for the confidence and supply agreement specifically, but I want to ask you more broadly about some of your political predictions for the new year or things that you're going to be looking out for. What are you going to be watching out for as we come into 2024?
3: Well, the most exciting answer in the world, which is interest rates, going to be watching interest rates. And and CPI announcements it's it's you know i mean like life's not going to get cheaper but you can start to see the case for if not a liberal election call at least more buoyant liberal spirits if the economy does start to improve in in certain identifiable ways that hit home for people who are struggling so i don't know what it feels like to have a mortgage to have to pay off and have an interest on those loans but if it, that starts to get a little easier for people in 2024 if interest rates start to come down you know a lot of times there are technical recessions but then there are psychological recessions you know this is the this idea that if people think we're in a recession then it's effectively the same as being in one because we behave as if we are in one so if things improve and people feel better then Not that they're going to run to give credit to anybody because mostly governments get punished and not thanked. But I'm definitely going to be watching those along with every economist and every opposition researcher and everybody in government who's desperate for a shred of good news.
2: This is, I think, what people on Twitter call the vibe session, the recession of the mind.
3: (laughs) It's real, though. It's so real. Vibes is everything, man.
2: No, (laughs) we are living in a vibes-based economy, 100%. And our politics are becoming very vibes-based, I would say. Kyle, what are you going to be looking at for next year?
4: Yeah, so uh, Ottawa had these big fights with the uh, tech giants over the past year. Didn't go quite as expected for the Liberals. Uh, they had dug in pretty hard on on the Online News Act, and you know had a kind of a save the save the furniture moment at the end of the year. Looking to next year, what is going to be the next kind of big? big conflict brewing on, on that side of things. You know, there's the the digital services tax that uh, uh, that they're looking at, but but more importantly, the liberals have promised an online harms bill that they've been talking about for a, a long time. It was supposed to come in hundred within 100 days after their election, and it has not probably because it's very, it's going to be more controversial than the other two controversial bills. It would actually deal with uh, things like censorship, which would kind of tie the conservative communications package up in a, in a nice tight little bow if you didn't understand why they were saying censorship before uh, on on some of those digital measures, then uh, this would make it all make sense. And that will be really interesting if the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict continues on, because that will insert the Liberal Party and the government directly into online discussions around that.
3: Donald Trump will be somebody that everybody north of the border will be watching as the presidential campaign south of the border heats up. Not just Trump, obviously, uh, every Republican and even sleepy Joe Biden. But uh, (laughs) but we'll be watching the U.S. for sure, because when we talk about the way liberals are comporting themselves, uh, both in the House of Commons and elsewhere in Canada, uh, there has been a notable uptick in trying to tar and feather Pierre Polyev and his band of conservatives as mega Republicans. Whether that paintbrush is credible or not, it's something that they seem wedded to. And I think we can expect a lot more of that in 2024, because apparently they think they can gain traction by fusing Polyev and Trump uh, into one kind of blob of far-right extremist conservatism.
2: Yeah, oh God, I like I completely forgot about the U.S. election for a little while, and it was very <laughs> blissful. And I wish I could go back to those times, but you know we can't be so lucky. <laughs>
0: I am looking out for Bill C-53, which I feel like is something that is not on a ton of Canadians' radars, but for Indigenous people and specifically Anishinaabe folks, this is like, big, big news. So to briefly summarize, it's basically the federal government trying to add certain Métis organizations to have inherent aboriginal rights under Section 35 of the Charter. But the problem with this is that there are some serious concerns with the way that specific Métis organizations are claiming right over territories that Anishinaabe are already living in, that these Métis people are claiming ancestors that are actually Anishinaabe ancestors, not Métis ancestors. So there's a bunch of, you know, Indigenous identity citizenship politics going on at play here. But the sum of it being is that folks are, are really concerned that the federal government is just going to add these Métis organizations who also notably are very friendly in negotiating with the government in a way that maybe some Anishinaabe governments are not. And Section 35 is like, you know, the holy grail of uh, of the constitution for Indigenous people. So it doesn't get much bigger than that for us in terms of Canadian politics. So yeah, I am definitely
2: wondering how that'll play out. Pivoting to not what you're going to be watching necessarily, but maybe your hopes, wishes, and dreams. What political resolutions do you wish the government would set for the new year, Nick?
3: I would love if the government would subsidize travel for any Canadian who wants to watch government in action by coming to the house of commons and having to watch an entire day from the anthem in the beginning of the morning where like so many off key (laughs) members of parliament get together and adorably sing the national anthem all the way through to the adjournment proceedings, what they call the late show at the end of the day and question period and all that, all that whole stuff. But everything in the middle too, where you have like 20 members of parliament in the house of commons, just very quietly talking to each other. Like it's, you could hear a pin drop most hours of the day in the house of commons. But the reason I think everybody should go watch that is because when you watch on TV, I've been talking to my dad a lot about this recently. He's like, what are they doing there? What are they accomplishing? It's just like, cause he watches TV news and he watches question period. And, and that's like the, the TV version, but in real life, and this goes for overnight voting marathons as well. You see kind of the humanity bleed through when the, when the armor kind of goes down, like the people who aren't on camera, the things they're saying or not saying, the, or the heckling that goes on when the cameras aren't on people. And you can kind of be annoyed by that, but you can also kind of understand it in the context of this really rowdy room. It humanizes these people. It doesn't excuse them for their weird, childish, boorish behavior, but it does put it into context in a way that I think you don't get on television. And it's worth seeing. It's definitely worth seeing. But no one should have to pay to do it. So it should be paid for by the government, no matter where you live in this country. It'll take a long time to get there, maybe. But And maybe you won't even enjoy it in the end, but you'll understand it a bit better.
2: (laughs) I feel like, yeah, just you will be educated whether you like it or not. I think even just going to Ottawa, many people perceive as punishment, (laughs) I fear. (laughs) Almost everybody. And Riley, last but not least, what are your wishes, hopes, and dreams for 2024? I want news
0: back on my social media. I feel like this, uh, we've been talking about this in in a in some sort of ways talking about online acts. But I'm like, I miss having news on my social media. I hate having to search it up. I feel dumber for it. I know that others must as well. Give me, give me back news.
2: Ugh. Alright, let's adjourn. That's been the Backbench. We'll talk again in 2024. Um, whatever kind of year you had this year, I hope that the next one will be better, whatever that means for you. If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also still on Twitter at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Riley, where can people find you? People can find me
0: online at Maybe or on my website at RileyYesNo.com. Nick,
2: where can people find you?
3: People can find me at politico.com slash Ottawa Playbook.
2: And Kyle, last but not least, where can people find you?
4: Uh, The same place, the Ottawa Playbook.
2: Wenceslas I was the Prince of Bohemia in modern-day Czech Republic from 921 A.D. until 935 A.D., he was assassinated by his own brother as part of a plot organized by a group of noblemen. He was considered a martyr and saint immediately after his death, and he has been immortalized in the Christmas carol, Good King Wenceslas, a real bop. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azrié with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.